time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 43 of the Feelin' Film podcast and week four of Nolan Month. Revisiting many of Christopher Nolan's great films has been a joyous experience for us, but this one seemed to hit us particularly harder than we both remembered. It also offered enough depth to fill many notebooks, and we hope to do this expertly woven story justice with our discussion today. So spin your tops, look away, and stay for a while as we plunge ourselves deep into the dreamlike world of Inception. We'll be sure and give you a kick when it's time to go home. Aaron, you are exactly right. This is a movie that I think we both connected with on a multitude of levels. It's one that I believe is worthy of the word rewatchability. And I think it gives, um, for me at least, it gives a, a way to tell people how Christopher Nolan works. I, I was thinking about this as I was watching it, and I said, you know, if I could tell someone, if I could say, what Chris Nolan movie should you watch? As much as I love The Prestige, I mean, that would definitely be one. But if I could get into the, like, wrapped up full picture of a Chris Nolan movie, uh, The Mind of Chris Nolan or whatever it is, this is a movie that I would absolutely recommend, not only because of the high rewatchability, but because of the fact that I believe Inception is a product of Chris Nolan's practice at storytelling. It seems like with every movie he makes, he gets a little bit more detailed in terms of the themes he explores. He gets a little bit more risky. He takes, a, he takes on a little bit more. And he brings with his storytelling an incredible amount of thought and uh, provocation of 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 themes and ideas and watching this i felt like we were getting sort of the like if if inception you know if this was his last movie to ever be made i would have been completely satisfied because i think it contained almost everything that we've appreciated so far in going through his his filmography i believe that it's a complex story but it's an entertaining story and it brings with it so much of what we've come to know and love about Chris Nolan and the ideas that that he presents. And I feel like it's probably, you know, at least at the time when, when it came out, it was, to me, it was the best uh, Chris Nolan movie that I'd seen. Uh, and this course is before I rewatched The Prestige and said, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, <laughs> and now there's some conflict with me. <laughs> yeah, there's know. there's conflict with me too. And I think it's 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 getting to be a problem <laughs> going back through his filmography because every time I rewatch one, I go, Oh, that's the best one. <laughs> and then I go and watch the next one and I'm like, no, that's the best one. And it's, it's really one of those matters of just like, what have I seen the last or latest the most mm. recently? And that's, that's my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, I, I think, but that says a lot about him as a filmmaker and the movies that he makes is that they just, they're great in the rewatchability. They, they don't get old. And I, you know, there, you have to be an amazing director, an amazing writer to be able to produce something like that, where not one, not two, but three, four and five movies that people want to watch over and over again, 
for the multitude of reasons, right? Yeah. I mean, I only got one thing to say to that. What's that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Is that going to be a thing tonight? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, I can't even do it justice. Never mind. <laughs> Well, before we get into the bombs and the kicks and the totems, I'd like to know what you've been up to this week. Well, my friend, I have been busy watching movies, and just work has been crazy for me uh, the last few weeks. So I've had a little bit of stress revolving around that, but coming home and just you know, finding time to get on the couch uh, has been nice. I've, I've gotten to got into a new home group that I've been uh, waiting to start recently, and so that was a, a nice part of my week as well, just getting to have a night where I can go out and kind of fellowship and get together with other families and other people um, from my local church, because that's a, a nice thing to get me out of the house. I tend to be a homebody, <laughs> and uh, watch I watch a lot of movies, but you know there needs to be a balance there. So the, the two things that I've seen this week that I really want to mention are Hidden Figures, which I ended up seeing late night showing of. I went to, I think it started at almost 10.30 at night. I was going to be off the next morning, folks, so I, I knew I could sleep in. And I actually remember it was interesting because I got out of the theater and <laughs> all the cars are gone, and I think I think all but like maybe one or two theater workers were gone. It was just it was very weird. I probably was the last patron walking out that night. But um, I, I really wanted to catch Hidden Figures. It was one of the two Oscar films, Oscar Best Picture nominated films that I had not seen, the other being Lion. And I I just knew I needed to catch it. Um, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. This was not one that I had high hopes of being great. I figured it was going to fall into that very traditional good category based on a historical um, or uh, you know historical characters and and kind of a little story that a lot of us didn't know about. You know, it seems okay. It's probably going to be a feel good, you know, motivational, inspirational type of movie, but it's not going to do anything unique or special. The interesting thing I would say is that it doesn't do anything <laughs> unique or special, but yet I still feel that it is great. This is a very important story. Um, this telling about these African-American women that worked at NASA that were critical in making sure that John Glenn got to space and got to circle the earth. I mean, the fact that they are so overlooked is egregious and all of the acting is phenomenal. Uh, maybe with the exception of, uh, one of the big bang characters, I think it's Jim Parsons. He plays a very serious character in this as a supervisor, <laughs> and it's it's a little hard to see him in a scientific role trying to be serious, <laughs> you know, as you can it's imagine. It's not hard to see him in a scientific role, just one to be serious, right? Is that, exactly. That's, that's what, what I, yeah, yeah, of course. Like, I, I, okay. I just almost wish he would have, like, instead of, like, screaming out when he was angry at someone, I just wish he would have, like, screamed Bazinga a lot of times in a very angry <laughs> tone, and, and that might have made it work better, but... Kevin Costner is a good job, and frankly, the three the three leads are all phenomenal. Um, Taraji Henson, I believe, had a hand in creation of the movie, and she plays what I would consider probably the closest to the lead. Uh, Janelle Monae, who is a hip hop or R and B artist, 
uh, is amazing. And I'm telling you, she has movie star potential. That lady knocked my socks off um, as an actress. And then the other, the other, the third, I mean, get this, the third person I'm mentioning is Octavia Spencer, who is actually up for the Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar. And I thought that she was the third best supporting actress in this film. So it, it's really good. Um, it's one that I can't wait to show my kids. I have a young daughter who's a teenager and who's into science. And I think this could honestly inspire, you know, a whole generation type of, of girls uh, that to go out there and chase your dreams and, and do science, you know, and, and embrace it. And it's okay. Uh, and I, I really like that about it. The other one that I saw this week was M. Night Shyamalan's latest film, Split. And if you have followed me at all on social media, I have been careful to tweet out as many spoiler warnings as I possibly could um, in urging people to go see this film as soon as possible. Go see it, go see it, go see it. Because if you don't, it's going to get spoiled. I just saw a thread right before we started recording in one of my Facebook groups uh, for films. And they were like, here's an article about something. And there may be spoilers inside the article for Split. But if you were smart and you put two and two together, when you read the title of the article, it's very clear what the spoiler is probably going to be. And, I mean, it's it's that simple, right? And it's a really interesting experience because when you go to the theater and you experience the type of surprise that Shyamalan has waiting for you at the end of this film you cannot replicate that if you already know I will use the sixth sense as sixth sense as an example of this that is a film that I have never seen the only reason I've never seen it is because I know the hook and I frankly have no desire to watch the movie now because it's all built around knowing or not knowing the ending so this is one where I don't necessarily think that's the case, but I think you really miss out by not getting that experiences. I'll tell you, Patrick, I, <laughs> when the twist came and, and I knew there was one coming cause people have been talking about it. So I was, I was kind of anxiously watching toward the end of the movie and I'm, I'm scene by scene. I'm just like, okay, when's it coming? Oh, is that it? No, oh, that, nope, that wasn't it. Okay. The next thing. Oh, maybe that's it. Nope. That wasn't it. And I'm just like, I'm kind of on pins and needles. Just like, when's it going to come in the anticipation when it happened? I stood up out of my seat and exclaimed, holy crap, but not crap, um, out loud. And I was not the only person. I would say about half my theater yelled out verbally, audibly exclaimed things, and the other half audibly said, huh, or groaned, or like made weird sounds, like what? Like they didn't get it. So it's very obvious that some people got it and some people didn't, you know? It was just a really cool theater experience. I wish that I would have seen this opening night, late at night, with an absolutely full, packed theater. I think it would have been incredible. So go see it while it's in theaters, folks, if you have any interest in Shyamalan's work, and especially his older work, because, yes, this is a return to form. It's actually a very good thriller. I found it to be engaging. I found it to be creepy. Um, The story was pretty tight. And, you know, all of all the Shyamalan's films are about 90 minutes long. He doesn't really push the limits with that. That's that's what he likes to do. So you don't have to invest a huge lot, a huge amount of time. So I, I thought it was really great. And I think that um, this one will cement him as, quote unquote, back 
and make us all very, very excited about whatever he does next. Very cool. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I, I want to see it. And odds of me getting to the theater are slim because La La Land has to take precedence over that at some point, as we've talked about. And if that doesn't happen, then I doubt Split's going to happen. But in my heart, I'm celebrating with you. I know you are. And I and I think that you will enjoy it very much, The especially the, the twist. But um, the good thing is, if you can manage to avoid it, which is going to be hard, it's going to be hard. But even if you don't, um, I think it's Regal. Regal has this deal right now through Universal where if you see all four of a certain group of four films in their theaters, then you get digital copies of all of those films when they come out. Oh, cool. And one of those is split. And so I am going to see all four, including 50 shades darker. I am doing, <coughs> I am doing it because that, you know what? I think that's the whole reason they're doing this by the way, because they put split and get out, which is another thriller that I'm really interested in. A little thriller horror movie. And then they put them with the great wall and, 50 shades darker so it was almost like okay we're gonna like try and get you to go see these two not so good ones (laughs) because we're gonna dangle these little freebies and i am that guy i'm that guy who's like hey yeah i like freebies so i'm gonna do it which means i will get a digital copy of split and therefore you my friend will by default end up with a digital copy of split yes I'm so glad we're friends. I really am for many reasons, but that being one of them. <laughs> so what about you? Have you uh, gotten to watch anything lately? Yeah, I, I uh, three actually. Real quick, I finished the John Carney revisiting of uh, the trilogy. I Ooh. finally rewatched Begin Again, and I, I enjoyed it the second time around. And I've mentioned this to Aaron offline, but it has, it has dropped. It is now number three uh, behind Sing Street and Once. But it's it's not like it was terrible. I mean, it was still a great movie, but in my heart of hearts, I'm going Sing Street's not going to be topped. And then Once just kind of came out of nowhere for me as being um, a great number two at close behind Sing Street. And then Begin Again was uh, was number three. Co- not coincidentally, but in a funny way, none of those, in terms of the release dates, you know, they matched, you know. So, <laughs> you know, Once came out first and then Begin Again and then Sing Street. And now it was like Sing Street once in the beginning again you know it was just kind of this weird mm-hmm. weird thing but um along with that i watched the documentary if i got back into the documentary viewing i watched a a doc called the barkley marathons and i believe this is on either netflix or it's available through amazon prime but i watched it's it's uh it's netflix now i remember and it's about this foot race that takes place in the hills of tennessee and it's a hundred mile, well, it's billed as a hundred mile, uh, five loop race. So each loop is 20 miles. It's the same loop that you do five times. And what's, what makes this interesting is not only that it's a, like a trail run, which, you know, is interesting in and of itself, but you know, there's a lot of trail runs out there, but there's a, um, there are so many things about it that are just really quirky and weird. Like one, you can't, go online and sign up for it. You have to like know somebody who's run it before. Wow. So, so it's like it's fight this, club. It's like fight club. Yeah. People don't talk about it. <laughs> the entry fee is like a buck 60. What? And yeah, it's weird. But if you are a quote unquote virgin or a rookie or a first timer, you have to bring a license plate from your home state. Subsequent years. I don't know if the fee increases or if it's the same, but there's always some additional kind of, 
thing that you have to bring with with you according to like the guys that run the race so one year it was a flannel shirt one year it was long underwear one year it was uh i don't even remember some it's it's always been some kind of clothing but it's, it's not been limited to that but it's typically that um the race starts i kid you not between the hours of midnight and 7 a.m on a certain day <laughs> and the runners don't know when it is uh they're only be they're only informed by this conch shell that blows, meaning they have an hour to get ready. And the trail is not marked by anything except for... Hey, does it sound like this? <laughs> if there was a theme that was part of this marathon, that would be part of it, I guarantee you. Hans Zimmer would love to score this race. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I've given away a lot, and I don't want to say any more about it, but it's a really cool documentary that talks about uh, not only the race and the quirkiness of it but just the just the desire and drive that that these guys who come out could get the privilege they call it a privilege you know I, people are weird you know everybody's got their quirks uh, everybody's got their quirks <laughs> but this this idea of of conquering this you know either the first 20 miles they call a fun run and so some for Dude, some people there is the nothing goal... fun about 20 miles <laughs> are you kidding me i'm you know I, to each his own, right? I like turtles out of the shadows. What are you going to do? So you're, you, it's, it, but it was a very entertaining documentary. Uh, and it, it talks about the history of the guy behind it, you know, why he started it, where the, you know, why the run takes place in Tennessee. And so all this stuff kind of gets brought out in the doc. So I'd recommend it. It's on, it's on Netflix. It's called the Barkley marathons. Well, I'm going to check it out. Please do. Cause it's, uh, it's, it's very cool. I mean, um, I, I love the fact that we do this. What have we been up to? Because it's really a de facto, you should see this, right? Or you should read this. Yep. Uh, we have no problem admitting that. But So the second was a movie that I didn't know about at all. Uh, as, as you know, listeners, my wife and I, we don't get a chance to see a lot of movies together. We're very, when we go, you, know, you and I, Aaron, we see a lot of movies because we podcast on them. But very rarely there are movies that my wife is saying, yes, I want to go see that. And as I've mentioned before, when we watch a movie, she usually gives such great different insight to a film than I do. And so it creates one great discussion and gives me uh, great uh, insight to talk about it if we're going to talk about it on the show, Passengers being a great example of that. Uh, the other night I was putting my son to bed and I came out and my wife was watching a movie and Chris Evans was in it. And I was like, this is not Captain America. What's going on here? It's a movie. It's a movie called Before We Go, and it's actually Chris Evans' directorial debut. I hadn't heard about it. Uh, it was about halfway through, and so she kind of filled me in on what it was about. Essentially, Chris Evans plays a um, a, a trumpet player who's taking a train to, or taking a either a plane or a train to New York to audition for a uh, uh, some kind of performance as a as a trumpet player, and uh, his train gets in at like one o'clock in the morning. He meets Brooke, played by uh, Alice Eve, who is running uh, through the train station trying to catch a train. And the whole movie is about finding out what, what their backstory is, like why they're in New York. Because he's not just in New York to audition. And she's got some stuff going on with a relationship. And it's really just a... A conversation like a hour and a half two hour conversation between the two of them and they they end up kind of helping each other emotionally it reminded me a lot of a john carney movie 
Hmm. where you have these potential love interests that kind of play with that idea. Some parts of it I kind of winced at. I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But there were, I was incredibly surprised at how much I enjoyed it uh, to a point of there were, there were two or three lines that stood out to me. Um, and I'm going, man, <laughs> this, this has, it has just these incredibly bright spots of being like a masterpiece, uh, not as a whole, but these different parts. And, um, I love kind of being surprised by that kind of stuff. I, I love one being able to connect with, with my wife on, on things like that, movies like that. But I also enjoy, again, being surprised by, by movies that one, I don't know any, either. I don't know anything about, or I have lower expectations that surprise me. And I was impressed with, <laughs> with his directorial debut. I kind of want to go back and watch it. Uh, because I didn't see the whole thing. I caught, I caught the end, you know, the back half of it, and then she wanted to rewatch like the first part because she enjoyed it so much. So I've seen like probably maybe two thirds of it, <laughs> but out of order. But out of order, and she was telling me about some other scenes that had some just great chemistry between the two of them, some good comedy here and there. But it, uh, it, it had a lot of heart. And the thing is, of course, I'm looking it up on Rotten Tomatoes, and the thing is just getting, just. You know, rid- ridiculed. And, you know, it's got like a 22% and maybe a 50% by audience score. And you and I know that, you know, when it comes to like a podcast like this, we don't care about that. But I wanted to kind of see what the masses thought. And, you know, some of the, some of the criticism was justified, but man, I actually enjoyed it. And I, nice. I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the soundtrack quite a bit. Uh, it was very, very much a complimentary soundtrack, kind of like what Carney does with his, with his movies. And, um, I'll probably go back and revisit it and just kind of kind of watch it on my own and, and kind of see what the whole the whole movie experience does for me. But yeah, so it's called uh, Before We Go. Good job, Chris Evans, on your directorial debut. He also starred in it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Just, just a way for him to get himself out into another movie by, by yeah. directing one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. That's great, man. I'm glad you – I always like discovering stuff. Um, just sometimes I'll you know, turn on my TV and I'll go to the movies, you know, filter, and just say, okay, what's on? And I'll mm-hmm. try and pick something I haven't ever seen before and do that same same thing. And then if I catch it kind of in the middle of it and it looks interesting enough, I'll stop or I'll you know try to find it and watch the whole thing. So mm-hmm. I've done it as well, and, and I agree. It can be a, a pretty cool, unique experience and way to discover stuff that you normally would never have on your radar. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm done with my part. Are you done with yours? I, I am. I am, I okay. am very done, and I am I'm very ready. Okay, let's do this. Let's uh, let's go to the first level. Are you ready to go into this? <laughs> Are you ready to get incepted? <laughs> I am ready to be incepted. You can, you can uh, sedate me at any moment. Okay. These, these puns are going to just go all night long. <laughs> Let me just say to start out with how cool it would be to have that kind of sedation where like you push a button and like within two or three seconds you're asleep. Dude, right? Like there are nights like – in fact, a couple nights ago I was tweeting out at like midnight, one o'clock in the morning going – I need someone to help me turn my brain off because I could not go to sleep. And yeah, I mean, just reach over to the side of the bed doop, and you're gone and you're, yeah. you're out. That's that would just, be amazing. Yeah, especially if you've watched like a scary movie and you don't, you can't go to sleep. Oh, that would be perfect. Yeah. We should, um, we should give a spoiler warning. Okay. Spoilers, blah, 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 blah. You guys know you've been with us for 40 something episodes. If you, if you're just joining us for the first time, yes, we spoil everything that we talk about. And with the, uh, you know, specifically with these Nolan movies, this has been out for a while and there's a statute of limitations. I think we both agree 
when it comes to spoilers. So this came out in 2010, so you've had at least seven years to uh, to watch it. So even so, we want to spoil the heck out of this. So if you haven't seen it, stop, go see it, pop it in, whatever, and come back and listen to what hopefully will be a great conversation about it. Oh, it will. It will be great. <laughs> well, this thing is riddled with so many different themes, so many different, um, I hate to use the word ideas because the, the concept of an idea is one of those ideas. I, um, there's a line by, by Cobb when he's explaining what inception is. It's this idea of going deep into the psyche or deep into the, the subconscious of a person and planting an idea because ideas, according to him and according to the team, have the power to start out as like a seed and grow into something big. And so an idea is what, for them, it, it, because it grows, it becomes something powerful. And that was something that really stood out to me first and foremost about this movie is the power of an idea and how that kind of shapes our world as an audience or our world as people um, did, did you catch, I mean, it's obviously something that's kind of in your face. <laughs> did I catch, did, did, did that's you what catch that movie's that, about. Yeah. Did, I did you catch so. that subtlety there? <laughs> um, but for me, when I, when I, when I digested that, I was thinking, you know, how much truth does that have when it comes to how we operate as people? And I work in a world of design where ideas are currency, where a good idea is, uh, is something that is seen as valuable only as far as it can be executed because I could have about a thousand different ideas, but if I can't execute any of them, they're like this mysterious thing in the air that has no tangible value at that point. It's just like, ah, that's a great little, okay. But how does it, how does it affect the world around us? And for these characters, I think that motive is not just implanting the idea but the growth of that idea and what it becomes, particularly for Saito. You know, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to implant the idea in Fisher's head to break up his father's company. And one particular scene I enjoyed was how, um, was how they were explaining how they can get that idea in there, how they had to make it, how they had to make it, um, like valuable to Fisher himself. Um, particularly with, um, with uh, with Eames when he was trying to say, okay, well, what if we make it like this, where we say, you know, we attach emotion to it, and I think DiCaprio was or Cobb was like, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do because ideas are more uh, effective when they're driven by positive emotion rather than negative emotion, and I love that particular scene where they're trying to really be specific with just a small idea with a small statement. Yeah, I wrote that down actually, and that it, it, he says subconscious is motivated by emotion, not reason, and that stuck out to me in a big, big way during that explanation scene because it, it really is. And you know, it, you we think of ideas in the most general of terms, you know, on an everyday basis, probably more related to reason. Or logic, you know, oh, I have this idea. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next. It's a, it's kind of a point A to point B kind of concept. Like that's what I'm trying to create something to get me to another place. 
Um, but in order to breed that and create that, there's a level of emotion involved. Um, and I, I, I just love the imagery. I mean, the imagery used here is incredible. And the idea of, of having to go these multiple layers down to implant this thing so that it grows so that it not, it doesn't just, it's not surface level, you know, so that it becomes essentially what I consider almost like a passion, right? They're not just planting an idea that is going to become an infatuation or a flash in the pan, you know, momentary joy. Like, Hey, I love playing this video game and I enjoyed it. And now I'm done. You know, they're, they're planting it so far down that playing video games becomes a part of this person's entire being, you know, it's a part of their, it's a part of makes them who they are. And so it, it grows into everything about them. And, and I, I mean, it's, it's creepy <laughs> and it's, uh, it's fascinating. And, and I just love thinking about it, to be honest, Th- this time around for me was way different than I'd ever watched this movie before, Patrick, because I, I don't know why, I, I guess I've always thought about the ideas, but I've never, the ideas, there it is again. It's going to be hard not to do that. Um, I've always right. thought about the, <laughs> the concepts in this film, but most everything always tied to the ending, you know, like what happens at the end of inception. That's what everybody wants to talk about. Um, mm. And this time being able to, to watch this with more of a c- clear conscience and a clear head to, to look at everything and all of the themes. I was blown away, blown mm. away by the amount of depth. <laughs> and again, just, you, they just, you can't avoid them with this no. movie. Um, the no amount apologies of, here, the amount of layers that this film uh, has built into it. Actually, yeah, it's it's it, it's just impresses me beyond belief at how much Chris Nolan is delicate with what he puts in here. Um, even down to, I mean, I don't think he did this unintentionally. Maybe he subconsciously did this, but you know, the first names of all the characters. Um, if you if you looked at all the names themselves, you've got um, you know, you've got Dom. You've got um, Robert, Eames, Arthur, Mal, and Saito. You know, if you take those first letters, they all spell dreams. And then if you add Peter, uh, Ariadne, and Yusuf, they spell out dreams pay, which is what they do for <laughs> for a mind thief. So, you know, even down to that kind of stuff, the delicacy that he has with taking this idea and, and running with it. I mean, this is – Inception seems like a very um, robust – experiment for him to say how can i how can i implant these ideas to get people thinking about this stuff so in other words i mean in some ways we've been incepted <laughs> you know you know with that blah, what you, 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 i was gonna hope you were gonna you know throw the blah at me oh i should have oh i'm sorry i'm <laughs> slacking on my my blah button <laughs> oh man anyway but you know, when you think about the the strength of the idea, it, it leads into the power of that idea. You know, and even when we look at where technology is, let's just take technology for an example. 15, 20 years ago, we weren't even thinking, of, you know, we, I think we just started thinking about cell phones, those big bricks that we would hold in our hands that only like rich corporate lawyers would be able to, to carry. And now we're referring to our phones as not just that, as their cameras and their, their 
their communication devices that aren't just they I mean the phone itself the actual idea of talking to someone has almost become kind of secondary or even tertiary but right. to to think about how far and how fast technology has advanced and how much it will continue to advance really says a lot about the power of ideas uh, Steve Jobs has that kind of he he's, he admitted that kind of uh, mentality with his company you know to think different <laughs> And to innovate again, I'm thinking. I'm using words that are part of my uh, occupational culture as a designer. That you have, you know, innovation and uh, refreshed ideas. I don't, you know, there there've been. There's the idea that there is no new idea. There's just refreshed ones. And and I can agree. You know, if I've thought about something, if I come up with something, somebody else has probably come up with it at some place. It's just about the execution at that point. So, you know, there's a lot of power that goes beyond ideas. We have light. You know, we have electricity because of an idea. We have uh, we have the internet because of an idea. And it isn't just an idea maybe by one person, maybe by a group of people. But there's a lot of power behind that. And that can be kind of scary <laughs> in some ways. And, uh, you know, that's something that, that I think Nolan hints at when he talks about the not only the danger of the idea itself, but the danger of actually implanting that idea into someone else because it's not their original. It's, it didn't come from them. Right. <clears throat> Which is exactly what happens with, you know, his wife, Mal, mm -hmm. by him implanting the idea that where they are at currently is no longer reality. She then has that idea grow inside of her and she takes it with her to reality. When, to, when they come out of limbo, she still struggles with believing that she's, not in reality because of that, because of how deeply that was planted in her psyche. And I think that one thing that he shows in such a great way, honestly, is once it's there, you almost can't get rid of it. And, you know, it's, it's a chat. It's, it's a scary thing because it, that we don't see any kind of reverse inception, you know, like maybe that's the next movie is, is, unincepted or something where we learn how do you take an idea away how do you how do you undo an idea and i guess you don't really undo it you kind of i guess you would just change it more so mm. than undo it you would you would change it to something else so maybe instead of undoing her idea that she now lives forever in limbo you know you have to go back down and, and change it back to making her think that she's in reality which which you can't do mm. which would which would mess everything up again so my point being um, is that once once an idea really takes root inside of us, it's hard to get that to go away. And, and it's hard for especially for anyone else to make that go away outside of our own self. Yeah, I, I don't ever think I don't think it can. Yeah. Whether it's put there by a team of people going into your dreams or it comes from our own place. Ideas stay with us forever. Whether, act, whether, whether or not they're acted upon, those ideas are always going to be there. And I think that it says a lot about not only the power of the idea, but also the fact that ideas uh, are, there's power in the fact that they originate with a certain person. Like how many times have we said, you know, oh, that was my idea. Oh, I came up with that. Mm -hmm. You know, where we want to take credit for something instead of necessarily saying it was a good idea. We say it was my good idea. And that's something that 
they 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 touch on when they talk about the emotional side of giving that idea to to Fisher because I think they they go through a debate of saying let's plant this in his head like I will break my father's company apart um, knowing that he has this incredible rift with his dad and I believe it's Don that says positive emotion is a lot more effective than negative emotion and so he gets even more specific and he says we need to implant this so not only that it's because his idea but that it comes from a place of value to his dad because of his connection with his father and so yes there's an emotional connection to it but it has to be something that is affirming instead of you know demeaning or whatever that it can't come from a negative place and i think that when we feel like we own an idea, there's a sense of pride that comes with that. And I think that's what they want from Fisher. They want Fisher to take pride in the fact that he is elevating himself above his dad, uh, his dad's opinion of him by doing this. I completely agree. And I would say that this viewing of the film, that was one of the, the things that stuck out to me the most that I had never really, maybe I just honestly, maybe I wasn't a mature enough viewer or watching the film and letting myself take these things in. Maybe I was just so focused on the cool zero gravity stuff that I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't, you know, watching closely, so to speak. But, you know, when, when he goes to that safe this time and when he goes to his dad, well, first he goes to his dad, you know, his dad is just, you know, muttering dis, dis, dis. And and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, what a brilliant creation. Like the the creation of this scene, knowing that someone had to create it to make it work, to play out the way they needed to, was just amazing. I was was thinking, you know, I'm thinking of the characters as storytellers, which is really Chris Nolan talking through the characters as storytellers. So it's a story within a story. Mm Mm-hmm. I went there. So, and it, it, it's just, it's so amazing to, to see that, you know, how he says dis, 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 like he's going to say he's disappointed and, and Fisher goes and he's like, yeah, I know, I know you're, you're disappointed in me. And instead, you know, he says, I'm disappointed that you tried to be like me mm-hmm. and I got teary. And when he walked to that safe and he pulls out that windmill, dude, I was, I was crying. I'm not gonna lie. I got emotional this time. Because I really connected to that because of the reasons that were given in this world of planting the idea, like you just said, with a positive slant. And so that was something I plan on asking you. I wanted to know what your thoughts on this were. How do you feel about the ethics of what was taking place here? Oh, more moral dilemmas. Well, what are you, you know, doing to You us, know Christina? I love this. You know I love this. I, like, so Saito says that his, his – okay. So in my opinion, Saito's motives are definitely self-interested. He makes that clear. There is a level of his of his his request that is about his company benefiting. But he also mentions very clearly that they need to stop Fisher's company because it's going to become a monopoly. It's going to become a superpower. Um so my question is, what do you think about that? Do you think that ethically what they are doing to Fisher is actually and and because of the idea that they're placing in him, the the the, the fact that they're changing a negative emotion and, and negative um, memory to a positive one, even if it's not real, do you find that ethically or morally 
wrong? Or do you think that in a way it's kind of a win-win for everybody? (laughs) I would say it's definitely altruistic. I think that there's a lot of people that would benefit from this, but it's at best ethically and morally questionable because you are still manipulating a person's psyche at this point. I mean, if I, if I knew, if, if, if I had a relationship with my dad that was completely strained, I think the big picture is that, hey, this would make your dad's, you, your relationship with your dad a lot better if we implanted this idea in your head that said, you're not a disappointment. <laughs> in fact, your dad is proud of you. But that's a lie. I mean, that's a straight up lie. And so at that point, you're, you're believing a truth that's really just your truth. It's a truth that satisfies you and satisfies, a, you know, I guess, a number of people because of that belief and because of the choice that you make because of you know, believing that. But at the end of the day, it's still a lie. And so, <laughs> but then I have to think about the fact that do I want to have a good relationship with my father? If I'm Fisher, I mean, not me, Patch, but if, if I'm Fisher, do I want a good relationship? Do I want my dad to be proud of me? Do I want my dad to, to love me genuinely? Well, yeah. I think every son wants that from his father. So somebody's technically changed my mind. <laughs> Could I have gotten there by myself? Probably. Somebody's just done it quickly with drugs and, uh, you know, little subconscious tells. So in that regard, is it really any different than me getting there on my own? Uh, I don't know. Again, I think at best it's more, it's very morally ambiguous. So there's, there's one thing that I think also plays into this and that's that his father is dead. They don't do this until his father is dead. Right. So we're talking about someone that can no longer affect the perception of them his dad cannot change it any further and he's gone. So, you know, does that also play into how we see this as being morally gray? Like, you know, there's, is it really hurting anybody at this point? Yeah, it's, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Ah, it's a hard question to answer. And I think it should be just like every morally, challenging question that has been asked in all of these movies in its own different way. It's a hard question to answer and it should be Mm -hmm. because we're thinking about the end result. And at the same time, we're thinking about the process. And while the process is incredibly messy and incredibly questionable, the end result is actually a good thing. Fisher's got a good relationship with his late, you know, with his, with his dead father now. Who you know can't speak up and say that's not how I feel. You know he can't come back from the dead and say that. I actually hate you, son. Don't get it twisted. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> well, and that brings up an interesting question: that had he been alive when that happened, I mean, how much trauma would that have caused Fisher to say, "No, I remember those times when you, uh, you know, w- w- those relation that relationship that we had." And he's like, "No, no, that's not the case." And so now you've got this conflicted dude who's probably going to have a nervous breakdown. But yeah, I don't think that would have worked. Yeah, no. And I'm glad that I'm glad that, that didn't happen. That would have been really too complicated. But it's it's a hard question to answer, and I'm glad it is because it creates incredible coffee table conversations 
after watching a film like this. It is, and it's one of the things that we both agree is, is it's why we chose Nolan for this month to do this. It's why we, we chose to focus on him as a director, and it's why he's probably, I, I dare say, you know, you and I's favorite director right now um, mm-hmm. because his films do this. They challenge us. They make us ask these questions. They don't give us the answers. They're mm-hmm. about they're about the thought process. They're about chewing on things and having these conversations. And I, I'll tell you where I land. I, I land mostly on a win-win side of this um at least for fisher now where i don't necessarily go win-win is i do think that sato's motives are self-interested in the beginning i I feel like he grows a little bit though through this experience and i feel better about it in the end because I think having gone through this experience inside of someone else's head and messing with Fisher's emotions and seeing his interactions with his uncle and, and things like that, I think that Sato is coming out of this a better man in a lot of ways. Now, I mean, I, I'm completely speculating, but that's my reading of the film, and that's what I like to take out of it. Um, and I, I just really enjoy I enjoy the way it ends. I enjoy the, the, the idea that... The idea... Oh, I enjoy the thought that they are all better off at the end of this. It's it, it's a happy ending. Well, and I didn't expect it. Yeah, and and this is there's a, a I'm gonna make a loose connection to the Dark Knight that there's hope at the end of this. It's it's ambiguous hope because we don't know what actually happens. I mean, Fisher. What we know at the end is that Sato makes a phone call. Dom is with his kids and Fisher is left on a plane just kind of staring out there with that kind of expressionless face. We assume that all those things happened. We assume that Dom got to see his kids. We assume that Sato was, you know, held up his end of the bargain and that things happened. And we assume that, 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 um, that Fisher followed through with the idea that was planted. And what that does for us is it sort of plays with this idea of reality and perception that Nolan puts us in, in this movie. Um, that just because something feels real doesn't mean that it actually is. And, uh, you know, that, you know, he sets up these rules, right. And, and then he proceeds to break them. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. And, and, and like the totem, for instance, he, it's used by Cobb to tell whether he's in reality or in a dream, but it's also used to manipulate Mal by telling her that what she's experiencing isn't real. So he, and as a result, kind of tell, asks us a question, well, what is real? And by leaving a lot of those things, I mean, we, we come to the conclusion that certain things happen, but then, you know, but at the same time, we're also going, well, look at the rest of the movie, you know, look at these other things. What we thought was going to happen. Didn't what we thought was, wasn't. So we then start questioning maybe everything else. And so I'm, you know, even now I'm going, maybe Fisher didn't do what he did. You know, maybe, maybe he didn't follow through with that because even though that was an idea that was planted, it was planted successfully. He still had to follow through with it. You know, an idea is only valuable if it's executed well. So we never see that same thing with Sato. He made a phone call, 
And so, yes, we knew that. But if, if, you know, it's just to me, I'm going all bets are off when it comes to the outcome. It's interesting you bring that up because Sato is very demanding that it has to, to work. And so there's, I'll, I'll tell you how my reading of this is. And it ties back into one of my favorite lines and quotes of one of my favorite dialogue moments of the movie. And that's early on when Sato is first talking to Cobb and kind of getting, you know, asking him to do this job or threatening him to do this job. And he says, Cobb, Cobb asks him, how can I be sure? Or, or Cobb says, if I were to do this, I need a guarantee. How do I know you can deliver? And Sato says, you don't, but I can. So do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret waiting to die alone? Which is like, ultimate gut punch right it's like okay i gotcha you know like he knew right but i think that this ties back because what he does here is he tells Cobb, you have to trust me you have no reason to trust me but you have to trust me and in the end Cobb does have to trust him but then sato has to trust that Cobb's inception worked because of what you just said all we get is the some introspective glances from Fisher on an airplane. Like we have no clue. And and he just cleared Cobb, right? He, we know that right. because he gets through uh, immigration. So Sato trusts that it has gone down the way that Cobb makes it seem that it has gone down. And so they, they kind of end up coming full circle by trusting each other. And I, and I love that theme within it. Right. But the ambiguity of that, like from the moment that Cobb wakes up from limbo. You mean like whether they're actually awake at that point? Boom. And, you know, that's the biggest, like that's the biggest takeaway that I think an audience has from this movie is um, based on that last shot, you're going, okay, wait. <laughs> was any of that, was any of that sequence real or not? And, and, and that's what I love about this is that we're left, we're left wondering if it's still real or if it's the dream. And as an extension of that, we're going, okay, now we're talking about what is reality. Because now you have this idea of truth and reality becoming subjective to an individual. And that's something else that I just, this time around I was going, oh my goodness. I mean, we make our own truth. Is that, is that what he's asking? Is that, is that what Nolan's saying in this movie? Is that, our own truth and our own reality is all that matters to us, or at least to certain individuals like Cobb or to whoever. And so, you know, we see that kind of play out with Dom choosing his children over wondering if he was still dreaming near the end of the, in the, end of the movie, Fisher cho- choosing the false idea that was planted into his head over his own history of how he was perceived by his dad but we, you know, again, we don't know if that, you know, if he felt followed through with that. And so there's just, what I love about this movie is this concept that existed in Memento, this unreliable narrator. <laughs> That's and, Mal's totem, in my opinion, by the way. I believe her totem is the unreliable narrator. I, You know what? I would actually, that's a fantastic it, uh, observation. And And real quickly, and I'll let you continue, but the reason I see that is largely because... I feel like it's the reality test. The totem is a reality test of, of, is this real or is this a dream? And one of the rules that we're given, and you mentioned Chris 
setting up these rules. Chris, we're on first name basis. You mentioned Nolan uh, setting up these rules and then breaking them. One of the, the things that Cobb is so very determined to tell Ariadne in the beginning is, you no, don't touch somebody else's totem. You can't do that. That messes things up. But he's using Mal's totem <laughs> the whole time. It's not even his totem. So yeah, it's unreliable at that point. And I, and I love that, too, because Nolan, as we've seen by watching these films, we keep seeing unreliable narrators. But anyway, carry on. Yeah, so he just, I think he carries this this notion of the fact that the power of, it's, it's, this, it's almost like this, this trinity of perception, truth, and reality that all play off of each other and how each one is powerful in its own right and each one plays off of one another, not only throughout this film, but throughout our own life. I mean, look, there is power in perception. You know, I can believe that certain people think that I'm acting a certain way if I'm told by five different people, hey, you seem this way. You know, and if five different people without talking to me have conversed with each other and have said that, then I'm sort of in conflict. I'm going, well, maybe I am that way if five or six people have seen that. And I stop trusting myself. I stop trusting who I am and my own personality because. Um, I think what was it? Uh, what was it? Our uh, Lenny had said, you know, you can't rely on memories. <laughs> you can't rely on, and and I think as an extension that we, it, I think we're told we can't rely on our own internalized kind of evaluation of ourselves. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that there's value in being able to say I know who I am, and so Nolan picks at that, but he also picks at the idea of what is a reality and is is the dream state equally as valuable as the reality you know for mall spending 50 years and growing old was was valuable to to both of them at least it 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 seemed that way at first that that became their reality even though it was still a dream like the physical aspect of it was still a dream state it was not reality it became their reality and i think that's something that's very powerful with people is that if i choose to believe something long enough I choose to believe that I am a certain way or that people see me a certain way, that becomes my reality. And therefore it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I believe that I'm a loser, then, and that's reinforced by other people, I will become a loser. I totally agree with you. And I think that Nolan uses Mal and Cobb's relationship in a lot of ways to demonstrate that there's this, this idea of, um, you know, how his subconscious projection of Mal uh, affects what his viewing of her is. And he even admits this at one point in the film, but you know, he, he says we're, I'm, we're seeing her now from his point of view. And he, he tells us he could never capture all of her perfections and imperfections that he's only projecting a watered down copy. And, you know, ultimately that ends up making it easier for him to let her go, but he's, he can't project. He can't, his, his, his new reality of Mal, <laughs> I'm trying to think of ways to word this, um, his dreamlike reality of Mal that he has chosen can never actually be equal to the real Mal. If, does that make sense? Am I, am I, oh, am yeah, I clear absolutely on that? Okay. It does. Yeah, I mean, we, we assume that we know everything there is to know about Mal because 
of what we're told by Cobb, but we can't trust Cobb because he can't trust himself. And, and that's I, brought up. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, well, I think that this plays into everyday life and, and that's where I go when I see this is I, I see it relating to how I view people and how my perception of you as a person and as a best friend, as a co-host is not, it's, it's my truth, right? It's my reality. And it's, do we project a more palatable version of each other because of our feelings for each other? Do I see you in a different light than I would see someone that doesn't have the same history with me that makes the exact same choices you do and says the exact same words coming out of their mouth that you do? Am I going to react differently to you because I'm projecting differently my version of you? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair statement. And I think there's truth behind that, that I think the answer is yes, because I think there's history and there's value in being relatable to other people. Um, you know, I, I love being married because my wife, quote, knows me better than anybody else. And so it gives me the safety to be able to say, I'm having a bad day or I don't know what's going on. Can, you know, and, and she will come back and say, well, I've noticed these changes in you or I've noticed that you're not doing this. And so she becomes sort of a, granted, it's very subjective because she loves me differently than other people do, but it's still, it's a mirror for me, you know, just like you're a mirror for me. And I, I think we talked about this, um, I don't know which episode, but the fact is that we need those, those mirrors of people around us to be able to kind of capture a complete picture of ourselves, including ourselves, because the fact is other people could be wrong about us because they don't know what's happening inside of us. But at the same time, we have to take into account and value the opinions of those that we have opened up to and that have opened up to us to kind of get a fuller picture. And the, the, the dilemma is, can we ever get a complete picture of who we are? I don't think we can. I honestly don't think we can because there's always going to be some kind of deception some kind of lie, some kind of half-truth that's going to exist either because someone doesn't want to tell us the complete truth or because we don't want to tell ourselves the complete truth about who we are. Does that make us bad people? No, I don't think it does. I think it makes us humans. I think it makes us people who need to rely on both our own internal selves, opinions, and, and understanding of each other, and also the opinions that other people have of us that we're close to. Um, I don't know that... <laughs> this wasn't explored in the movie, but I don't know that Cobb has that. You know, I think that he has his team and he has his kids, but he doesn't, I mean, he, the one person that he values the most is not there anymore physically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it dangerous for him because she is now a projection that has taken over him. She now controls everything about who he is and she's not even alive. And, and that's a dangerous place to be. Um, it comes from a very genuine place. I mean, we know he loves her immensely. And um, and there are some moments in this movie that break my heart for him because we see that genuine love that he has and the grief of having to let that go. Um, and I think that he just, uh, we we can see how much of his world she, she is to him. Uh, and... And it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a very tragic thing. 
Oh, completely tragic. And and I'm going to actually go into some detail about that letting go aspect a little bit later, but the hold of her memory on him is something that definitely resonates with me in a big, 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 big way. Um, and without, you know, going to ton of detail, I'll just say there's, there's a line in this film that, that, that broke my heart completely. And, and I think this is one of the things you were just mentioning. Um, one of the scenes where he's talking to Mal and she's saying that she wants to grow old together. And he's like, honey, we've, we've done that. <laughs> you know, we've already done that. We, we, we were able to do that. And then he says, I miss you more than I could bear, but we had our time together. I have to let you go. I have to let you go. And it's when, he's, Ugh, yeah, it, right. Hard. I know. I know it, it, it hurts me too, but I think it's something that so many people can relate to. And it, and it, this is one of my favorite things about film and one of my favorite things about being able to discuss film with another person is this movie is giving us this 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 way of dealing with grief, which was a big theme in year in 2016 movies, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we saw lots of movies in 2016, Manchester by the Sea and A Monster Calls um, and, and others that were really dealing with grief and processing grief. This is a, an example of that as well. And it's a specific type of grief being processed. He is processing the loss of his wife, the loss of the memory of his wife. But it doesn't have to be that for you or me for us to relate to the feeling of having to let go of something, of some memory that has a hold on us, something that has completely taken us over. Um, And, you know, if we sometimes want to tell ourselves that it helps us, we sometimes want to justify those memories and, and that hold we keep on those, those situations. And it may be grief. It may, maybe it's, Maybe it's losing your parent that you want to hold on to that because it gives you a reason to be angry or it gives you an excuse to be mad at the world or, you know, to, to say you're having a bad day, whatever the case may be, we have reasons that we want to hold on to those things, which, which make it harder to let them go. Um, and I love that we can relate to these in different ways. doesn't have to be the exact same thing we're seeing in the movie. For sure. Um, I was watching an episode of This Is Us, which I know you and I both just adore. Oh, yes. Highly recommend anybody listening to <laughs> watch This Is Us. Yeah, and we're ca- I mean, and my wife and I are catching up with it, so we're not completely caught up. But the most recent episode dealt with a little bit of that. And one particular character was dealing with the loss of um, of his spouse and the hardship of letting that go. There were uh, several, scenes, several scenes early on where we see uh, – just pieces of her, like, uh, you know, her, her clothing was still in the closet and medication was still in the, in the medicine cabinet. And we, we, without him saying anything, uh, just seeing this imagery, we, we see that he has not let her go. And in a lot of ways we sympathize with that. We're like, you know, why do you have to let someone go? Why do you have to try to quote, move on? And there's a great conflict in the episode with him and another character about that. But part of part of letting go, part of grieving, something that I thought was masterfully illustrated in A Monster Calls is the ability to admit that you cannot control that, that you cannot uh, be lord over somebody else's life. 
even if you want to, because what that does, that leads to guilt. I mean, we have Connor who's dealing with the guilt of having to let his mom go because he doesn't want to. He knows that he has to. And I think Dom deals with the same thing. You know, the whole movie, he's dealing with her death and how he feels guilty because he planted that idea. But it's almost like being an alcoholic and being a parent of an alcoholic is it's not your fault that your son or daughter is the alcoholic. Right. And the first thing, one of the things that, that, that I've kind of read and, and learned because of just some close ties that I have to that is that one of the steps in AA is that you go and you release the people that you're closest to from that guilt perceived or otherwise, that it's not their fault, that a person's alcoholism is their own uh, choice. Now that doesn't preclude, that doesn't, that doesn't dismiss, you know, caring for that person and loving that person. I mean, I'm not saying that at all, but you know, if I'm a parent and I have an alcoholic, if, if my son becomes an alcoholic, I mean, it may, it, I don't want to get into that. That, that would be, <laughs> but, but I think that you, you have this, this notion that you feel a sense of guilt because I mean, that's your, that's your child. And at the end of the day, it's their choice to make the choices that they make, whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or just any other decisions that can cause them irreparable damage. It's not your fault. And I think that's something that Dom deals with here. It's like, yes, he put that idea in her head, but she chose to believe it. She chose just like he chose not to believe it. Right. You know, and, and that's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, and one of the most heartbreaking scenes from, I mean, I, I mean, gosh, I just, most dramatic scene for me was the moment when she just leaps, when she jumps off the window and I just see him, he turns his head away and he goes, he goes, Jesus Christ. You know, he's just in agony because of just not only what he's just seen, but all that stuff just came to the forefront. I could not fathom having to experience that yeah. in that moment. And I thought it was just a, a just a brilliant performance by by Leo. Um you know, just on his own. The whole cast was fantastic, but I think Leonardo DiCaprio just just owned that role as as Cobb and I think that was the moment for me that that really solidified uh, just a, a, just a moment of emotional grippingness there. Yeah, it, it's so hard to deal with that and and part of her you know, she just kind of slips off of it. She doesn't really leap. She just, just falls, you know, she just lets herself fall. And it's, it's kind of similar to what we see multiple times in the dream world when they are exactly what she thinks she's doing. We see it later with other characters when they are trying to initiate a kick and they just fall. They don't do some crazy, like running jump. They just let themselves fall. And that's what Mal does. She just lets herself fall thinking that it's going to be a kick, you know, or, and, and it's, it's so, gosh, it's so hard. I think that's one thing that sticks out to me too, is just trying to process how that would feel to have your reality so twisted. And I think they, Nolan does a masterful job of showing us that Cobb is obsessed with this and he is so concerned. There's another highly intense scene where he's sitting there in the beginning and he's he's holding the gun to his head while he spins the top, right? Like trying to to make sure. He's so paranoid about it, the entire film. He, he's just completely paranoid all the way up mm-hmm. until that final scene. Um, he, he can't 
know whether he's in reality or not. Like that would completely break you into pieces. And yet knowing full well that it's going to mess with your head in a major way. I think that most of us would react the same way that Ariadne does. You know, Cobb says she'll be back. Reality's not good enough for her now. How powerful of a statement is that? Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm speechless when it comes to just everything that's happening in here. It's just, it's packed. And I, I don't know that, I think one of the things that, that the cast does really well is they allow you individually through their performances to connect with them in a way that feels, I mean, you feel like you're suffocating when you're hanging around macabre. You feel completely skeptical when you're walking with, you know, with, uh, um, with, uh, gosh, um, with Ariadne and also with, with the rest of the team, you feel, you feel scared. I mean, you feel all these different emotions with this team because they're all bringing something different to the table, skepticism or paranoia or frustration. And, and I think that's the power of this cast and why not only why no one kind of picked these people that he did, but also because he wanted to create that dynamic. I mean, he didn't want to create more than one cob in terms of a personality. He wanted to, you know, he, I think I remember reading how each, each character, you know, the architect or the, um, the different roles that they play is sort of synonymous with, uh, I think it was synonymous with how, how, a, 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 a crew works on a movie set. You have the director, the producer, the writer, uh, the costume designer, the set, the set guy, and they all form this complete picture and they, they're a team, but at the same time they have completely different personalities and completely different roles. And I think it, at any given point in the movie, particularly during the dream sequence, which I think took up a good chunk of the movie. Yeah. I actually timed that by the way. And it's, um, and I took up roughly an hour to get to the final dream. And then the final almost hour and a half was spent inside that final dream. Okay. So yeah. So over that. half the movie is spent in that final dream. Okay. And, and so to my point or to, to that point, what we get to see is this variety of not only how the team works together, but also how they each respond to the situation at hand. We have, you know, we have, we have Cobb who's, who's paranoid. We have Arthur who's, um, who's frustrated, you know, Mr. Instructions, Mr. I'm going to explain everything to you. Uh, we have Ariadne who is a little bit, uh, skeptical, but like, but it's, but grows into a sense of like, well, we can do this. We can try to do this and this and this. And then we have Eames played by Tom Hardy. He's just fantastic. I mean, he is like, he could be the next bond because of this performance. Um, he's go ahead. I, I, I love, I just love that you mentioned that because I was going to say that this is my favorite type of Tom Hardy performance. And there's been a couple other films I've seen him in that are similar to this, that are not like his over the top characters like Bane or, um, in the Revenant or in this new series taboo where he's kind of doing or bad max, you know, where he's these very big personalities and, and crazy action, action hero star, which he, he can do that very well. But I thought the exact same thing. I mean, watching this movie, I was like, dude, this is James Bond in a Christopher Nolan movie. So when, I mean, the news came out recently for listeners that don't know that Tom Hardy actually came out in the media and said, he wants Christopher Nolan to do the next Bond, and he wants to be Bond. 
I don't even know if you knew that, Patrick, but he literally just said that last week. So <laughs> I would not be opposed to that. I, right. I mean, you see him in this role and you're like, dude, like, I, I love it. I just love his performance. And I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned it because he was <laughs> he was like my favorite thing about this movie, him and and Cillian Murphy. I just have to quick plug that I think Cillian Murphy is an incredibly underrated actor and is not appreciated nearly enough. That's 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 the truth. Very elegant, very classic looking. And uh, I think she was in The Dark Knight Rises as well. Uh, Cillian Murphy was. He's he's Scarecrow in uh, the Batman trilogy. Ah, gotcha. Sorry. I was thinking um, my bad. I was thinking of uh, Marion Cotillard. Cotillard. Oh, yeah. Mal. She well, she's also in The Dark Knight Rises. Sorry. My bad. As was Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, Tom Hardy. Basically, (laughs) Nolan has this. Nolan likes his actor and Michael Caine. Like basically. (laughs) Yeah. Over half this movie was in The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> it's like, you guys want to stick around for this third movie I'm coming up with in a couple of years? That sounds good. Let's I still do that. love it. I think we mentioned it before, but I just love when directors have their guys and have their, their actresses and actors that they they are comfortable with and that they think of when they are writing roles clearly and, and they go back to to the well. When they do it, and they do it right. And, and he's, right. he's like that. Jeff Nichols with Michael Shannon comes to mind as well. That's for sure. That's for sure. I love that too. Well, so one of the other team members that I don't think gets a ton of credit um, that's part of this Inception team was Hans Zimmer, you know, the guy that was behind the score. Uh, I want to talk for a minute about the power of the music in here. Uh, first and foremost, the fact that music was. <laughs> Oh, this is going to be the second week in a row. I can't compose myself for a minute. <laughs> kind of okay. like Hans Zimmer. You can't compose yourself. Oh, dang. I just, I, I ran right into that one, didn't I? Anyway, um, so first and foremost, the, the song, I, it's a French title, but it's the song that's used to lead them into the kick whenever they're supposed to wake up. I think that's fantastic how no one has decided to use music as a means to interact inside the dream. I thought it was great, but um, Zimmer as a composer, he's he's one of my favorites, and this was the first time in a while that I noticed, um, outside of you know Carney stuff, that I noticed um, specifically instrumental music and how it supports the moments, and and we joke about that bonk because I mean it's I mean we see that everywhere now. It's just this like dramatic like check it out, come here, you know and and it's appropriately done that way, sometimes overly uh, too much. But I think what Hans Zimmer does is he, just like the rest of the team, he compliments and he adds this layer of, of, um, of drama to each individual layer of the, the dream. And, you know, it, I think it's a compliment to say you don't notice the music, but it's kind of an insult to the composer because you're like, you know, the composer doesn't need to be, you know, he doesn't need to be at the forefront, but at the same time he needs to be there just enough. His music needs to be there just enough to kind of, uh, you know, add some of that. And I think, I think his musical score for this particular movie was amazing. I thought it was, I thought it fit perfectly. It, 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 it didn't feel like, Oh, this was written for this scene or this was written for this scene. It felt like it was just sort of organically placed inside here. Like as if he was watching these guys reactions and, he decided, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and it's just, just amazing. Well, there's a reason it won an Oscar, um, it, both both he for this and also, um, gosh, what's his name? Is it Michael Fister? Or I can't Wally Wally Fister? 
the longtime mm-hmm. cinematographer for Chris Nolan, winning winning a cinematography Oscar for this film, which is, I mean, I don't know how you could have ever imagined giving it something else. So <laughs> it was a kind of a no-brainer when you see the amazing effects in this movie. But well, let's I, talk about the effects just real quick. Well, so, let me think, let me talk music before we go to effects. Sorry. I, I, I agree, and I love Hans Zimmer, and I had forgotten how much I love this score, the whole thing, all the way through. And I think – you know, having now we're watching his films go, going through them, he does not fall back on the idea in a lot of popular uh, movies to use current songs or, or even old songs, but he doesn't use like pop songs or or actual recorded music. You know, he uses these these instrumental scores instead in almost all of his films, and they really I think enhance the story that way. He lets the actual dialogue and the actual acting and the cinematography, he lets all of those things shine because he lets them mold together with the score. And this is just the perfect example of it. That, that one track called time, which is the track that plays at the end of the film um, during the final scene. I tell you, I mean, it's already an emotional moment, but when that thing, when that thing starts, dude, I lose it every single time. And it's time every single time I lose it. And, um, I also want to talk about time, by the way. That reminds me before we finish. Um, but do we have time? We we will make time. <laughs> uh, we'll just go down a layer, and we'll have plenty more. They're, so um, exactly right. <laughs> the uh, anyway that that specific track even triggered recently the the feeling film Facebook group came up with the idea of we'll just we'll just start like a, a Spotify list right for all of our listeners with the best movie track score songs or stores the best movie score tracks and just make this awesome Spotify playlist, which should be a lot of fun. And I think it's cool that to me that rewatching this and thinking about that track triggered something neat for us to, to take forward and and mess with. And I just, I just love the score. I was listening to it for about an hour before we started podcasting and I just sit on the couch, taking it all in, but yeah, I love it. Yeah, very very emotional for sure. One thing that wasn't emotional but stood out to me was the was the effects. I think you touched on that, and I wanted to make a real quick comment about that. Was that I think a good major, and I mentioned this last week. I think with the Dark Knight that there weren't a lot of special effects used. Obviously, there were some some CG elements. I think when the buildings sort of sandwich in on themselves, when uh, Ariadne is kind of creating her that was own- practical. That was no, that was not practical. That's one of the few things that was not practical. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm wrong, uh, I want to I want to meet the people that actually did that <laughs> that physical. <laughs> but I can appreciate. I'm just going to repeat what I said last week. I can really appreciate a crew that gets creative with the use of practical effects. I think that says a lot about the the resources that they have and not just the resources that they have, but the imagination. And that's not to take away from CG. I mean, I think there's some real value in CG for things that that can't be done practically, but I mean, even the, you know, the, the, the loss of gravity, uh, that whole sequence and the rotating room, I mean, those things were done, I think with practical effects, but when you can do something like that and create a surrealness to it, there's some real movie magic that happens there that, we tend to forget about because we live in a world that's full of just, you know, computer graphics. You know, it's all 
can, you know, if you can, it's, it's like living, you know, it's like being in the dream world. If you can imagine it, it can exist. Mm -hmm. And I think it's ironic that most of the stuff that was imagined was done with things that were very much real. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Some of the, some of the scenes, you know, we've, we've talked in other episodes of Nolan's specifically the dark Knight last week about how like all time great that dark Knight opening scene is. I, I, Inception is up there. The way that Nolan Nolan doesn't do credits, man. Have you noticed that? Like, there's no credits really in this film. It just the film just starts and right. Cobb is on the beach, and the whole opening scene is just completely tense and and draws you in immediately. You have no idea what this is going to be about, and you, you know it's like okay, this this is interesting. Am I getting some sort of a crime thriller vibe? Like, what's what's going on here? And then all of a sudden we start learning little bits about the dream and switching to the same characters in different locations. And now we're just like, our minds are just starting to explode and it's all just kind of given to us in this brilliant way where it's, it's not, it's not withheld. He goes right into it, but he goes into it in a, in a very um, careful manner to like dish it out to us just enough in each scene to learn as we go. And I just, I really respect the way the opening scene was done and, some of the other action scenes, you know, the the ones I really love are a couple of the ones at the end, um, after the van chase and the zero gravity scene, um, when, well, there's a moment that's tied to that scene where Yusuf turns around after, after getting away from being chased, and he just goes, did you see that? And he's got this big grin on his face, and, and then he just, it turns to this complete dejected look because they're all asleep. Yeah. They, they, nobody <laughs> saw it. But the... um. The other one that I really love watching is the Ariadne kick up sequence at the very end of the film where she falls backwards uh, from limbo and she kicks up once. And then we just we follow her kicks all the way up to waking up in the van. And Mm -hmm. I just love that sequence. It's never broken. It's just her on her going all the way up. And and the effects visuals in this film are bar none incredible. Well, there's a there's a real um, sense of awe that you have when, and of course, and the truth is, this is a long movie, I believe. It's like to what two and a half, close to two and a half hours. Is yep. that right? Mm-hmm. Well, so it was the Dark Knight, and so uh, you and I were talking about you know long movies. To, I think we were talking a little bit about um, about uh, two thousand one, Kubrick yeah, Kubrick yeah. stuff, and how some of the some of his more famous ones, not all of them, obviously, but they're just like two and a half, three hours. I mean, he did. He did Spartacus that I think is like, what, 12 hours or something like that? Like the first half. You know, every is... time you mention it to me, it gets longer, Patrick. <laughs> Earlier today, it was 10 hours. Now it's 12. <laughs> I don't think that's how this works. Okay, sorry. I just Well, maybe it's the second level. I was going to uh, say, when you go a layer down, it gets longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if we ever review Spartacus, let's do it from the top level because I don't know that I could sit through a 50-year uh, movie. Spartacus it, it, in five it, minutes with Phil and Phil. <laughs> 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 that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Get right through it. Get right to it. Um, but one of the things I I think is great about his movies is that he, uh, particularly with Inception, is he sets up a world. In a world, uh, he sets up a world of fantasy or the dream sequence. I mean, he he gets you into it in a very well paced way. Sets up the rules plays with those rules, breaks those rules, and gives you a complete story all in the span of two and a half hours. I mean, 
I, I was just, I was just completely enamored by, um, by the, the visuals telling the story of how his world works, how the dream world works. Because we, you know, we, we imagine it's like he's taken like thoughts and ideas and concepts that people have talked about when it comes to dreams. He's used those in dialogue with Dom, you know, talking about, you know, it's like that moment when you're, you're trying to remember the dream, but after you've just woken up, you know, these things that we, we, we're familiar with, but then he expands them visually. He says, this is what that could look like. And I would love to have the money and the crew and the talent around me to be able to say, let's create this. Let's create a dream world based on concepts that most people think of. You know, what would it, what would it look like visually to be half asleep and half awake trying to remember your dream? I mean, I think I would love, I, I would hope that in, in, in my world, I think, in my mind, I think this is what was happening in the writer's room. This is what was happening when they were concepting this idea out, when he was writing the script and when he was coming up with these, these ideas, he was sitting with, with people going, what do you guys think? And I think that it goes back to the idea of, of ideas and how the small idea of a script that I think he pitched to Warner Brothers like eight years prior didn't actually get pushed until, you know, until 2010. One of the things that I found out about this was this is the first movie since his movie following that was an original concept it wasn't based off of a, a franchise yeah. or off of a short story or whatever uh this was his first like original idea which again i think plays right into the movie itself that if a movie is about ideas well this whole story is an idea right and this is what an idea can do and how if it grows it becomes what it what it what it has you know if i was in that writer's room and i was creating my dream world patrick i i gotta tell you though i would not be the type of person who would choose to have my head run over by a train to kill myself. If, if I'm going to choose <laughs> to kill myself, there are many different ways that I feel I could, I could find uh, to go out that did not, by lightsaber that did not, <laughs> did not involve having my head run over by a freaking train. I just, that, I, <laughs> that scene every time I just seeing them looking at each other from that perspective, I'm just going, Oh my gosh. And I think, I think we do get an explanation at some point about, you know, how it has to be a really big kick, like to get you out of limbo. Right. But, um, but gosh, my goodness, like why, why that, why that? It's just, it's, ugh. Ugh. what, what yeah, other, I, I, I wanted to mention another quick scene too of, of comedy that when I was talking about the Yusef moment earlier, there's one other really cute one that I just, I love, love, love. And I kind of go all every time it happens. And every time I watch this movie and it's, it's during the dream, and uh, Arthur is with Ariadne, and uh, one of the projections comes by, <laughs> and he's like, they're starting to notice us. And he's like, quick, kiss me. And so he, he kisses her, and then she goes, I don't think it's working. And he's like, yeah, he just completely subtle, right, and smooth. He's like, yeah, it was worth a shot. <laughs> and then he pauses, and he goes, we should probably get out of here. And it's like the most smooth move man like a complete smooth operator like he and, and she gives this just super duper slight grin like recognition of they both have this like upticked smile but it's not at all a full smile it's like they both very clearly recognize that was purposeful and <laughs> and i love it i love to me that is a, the brilliance of an expert craftsman 
right? Mm-hmm. We don't need a love story between these two. That there's not room in this for that, and it's it's completely unnecessary. But acknowledging that two people who are working together and have have potential attraction to each other and giving us one so you know full scene of like it gives us so much information in just that quick moment on screen i think is indicative of of how awesome you know his brain is <laughs> well i think i think what chris nolan knows is that comedy he knows this is a drama. He knows that most of his movies are dramas. I don't know that he's ever done a comedy, uh, at least in the movies that we've reviewed. But I think what he what he understands about writing and about filmmaking, and again, I'm being presumptuous because I know you know very little about him. But I think he knows that comedy is important, but it's important enough not to be a distraction. And when it can be used sparingly, when it can be used to kind of release some of the tension in the room. I think that's good because just like with a horror movie, you need moments when you're not being scared all the time. You need moments to breathe. You need moments to sit back and take in what you've just experienced. And with his movies, particularly with these two, Dark Knight and Inception, it's so it can be so heavy-handed and so intense that you need those moments of lightheartedness but not so much that it feels like you've taken away from the moment. And that's what I think is great. I, I loved that moment because it didn't, it fit right in there. You know, it, it, Arthur goes, this will, you know, this, you know, we need to be, a, you know, we need to just don't need to be a distraction. And so even in, in that moment, it's almost like through the character of Arthur, no one's saying we don't need to be a distraction, but it's important for us to do this because it's funny. Yeah. And, uh, and and just it you're right it's it's a great awareness of how to tell a story especially because drama is a hard thing to do it is I mean, drama is I mean comedy is easy and I say that very very loosely comedy is not easy but I'm saying if you're gonna have to pick a genre you're probably gonna pick a comedy over a drama because you you've got to you've got to convince your audience to want to you know, listen to your story with drama. Whereas with comedy, you can just distract them with crude jokes or with <laughs> yeah. really great one-liners here and there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Patrick, I think that, uh, it is time, uh, for us to, uh, kick up <laughs> to the connecting point. <laughs> so why don't you, uh, start us off? I mean, this one, We've discussed in depth, and I would assume there are many options here within this movie for something that you related to or connected to, and I'm I'm interested to hear which which one you chose. Can I pick the whole movie? Is that is that on the table? Can that I is say- absolutely not an option. Okay. <laughs> I want to. Uh, gosh, there were so many to pick from. I think the one moment for me that really connected me to the film. It was actually the whole exposition of Cobb explaining everything to uh, to Ariadne. It's like in the sequence of events at like the coffee shop where everything starts exploding and the city just for, you know just kind of folds in on itself like a you know a, a taquito or whatever. <laughs> that we we Did get you this just say real, a taquito. I said a taquito. I, you know, it's a terrible analogy. And then it made me hungry, but too. So thanks. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> But what I loved about this particular sequence was that not only was it entertaining, but it was also educational. And as an audience member, this is so vital because if I don't know what's going on, if I don't get, 
if I don't get the rules, if I don't understand the rules of how a movie is actually, you know, working, how an idea is, is working, I, I don't enjoy the movie experience. Um, I feel like I miss so much, uh, not because of like subtle things like Easter eggs, but rather just like the, just the basic logic of the movie. Uh, and so I connected with, with Ariadne because she needed to understand the structure and limits, if there were any, of the dream world that she was going to be constructing. In that same way, I needed to understand the rules that Nolan was using to tell his story and then how he subsequently broke them. If I didn't have this explanation, um, I would have probably been distracted the whole time trying to figure stuff out. And I would have missed the more philosophical questions and all this other stuff that were being posed as the film progressed. So here's what, here's what I love about that. It's where the rewatchability factor really increases because the first time you watch it, you, you walk away going, what the heck did I just watch? And you're, you're asking all these questions because, you know, whatever. But, you know, the second, third, fourth, fifth, you get more and more and more. And I think if you didn't have that one scene, if you didn't have that exposition, if you didn't have that explanation of how everything was going to work, you would have completely, you, you just completely miss it. You're completely distracted by like, wait, what's going on here? And while that can be fun for some people, for me, it's not. And so I'm glad and grateful that scenes like that are, are in there because I think no one recognizes this is going to be a weird concept for people to get, you know? And, uh, when I, you know, when I watch that, it's very, it's, a, it's, a, it's my security blanket for the movie. I'm going, okay, get me to that scene and then I can enjoy the rest. Man, it's a great choice. And you know, if it wasn't for severe, severe emotional impact, uh, at one point in this movie, that would be my connecting point as well. And, and for the exact same reason, I think it's, it's so essential to everything else about this movie and being able to enjoy it, um, for entertainment purposes and be able to think about it and go deep into it, um, from a, an exposition kind of level. It is, it is such a great one shot explanation. Um, and like you said, it's entertaining too. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's got some lighthearted moments. It gives us a great introduction character wise to Ariadne. Um, and it's hard. It's hard when you have this ensemble cast to make everybody matter or to give everybody a role and, and flesh them out. You just can't do that, but it lets us do some of that enough of that, you know, just enough with Ariadne to, to care about her. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love that one as well, man. Cool. What about you? What was your connecting point? Well, if anybody's paying attention, and I hope you, you have been, especially if you're still with us listening, um, we haven't really talked about the ending much and about the big things that everybody questions, which is, you know, does the top stop spinning or not? And the reason for that is partially because of what my connecting point was, uh, is, related, is about the ending of the film, and so we may talk about that a little now. Honestly, there are just so many great choices here. For me, it has to be the ending. Um, starting with Cobb walking through the airport, that's when that incredible Hans Zimmer score kicks in, that song that I was telling you about, Time, that track. And we see this sequence of all of his team acknowledging him with like simple smiles and nods. He just, they're, they're clearly not, not trying to connect with each other. They're trying to just casually go their separate ways but they all acknowledge Cobb and they all they all know what this means to him to be walking back into the states for the first time they know where he's going they know what he's going to be doing it's an important moment and I love 
the connection that we get to see with the team right there. That's that's the first part of what really grabs me because throughout this, we don't really necessarily think of them as always caring about each other as much as just being a group of people that work together. And and that moment solidifies that these people care about each other beyond the Arthur Cobb relationship, which we already know is pretty close. From there, Cobb goes home and we get this closure and I, and I feel like Cobb has just gone through a journey the entire film. He's been dealing with his past, and the whole thing is him simply trying to get home to his kids. Most of the film, he doesn't really realize that, but he does in the end. And that's something that I resonate very strongly with, thankfully for very different reasons. But having been uh, in the Navy for many years, there were times when I wasn't able to get home to my kids. And so... While it's different, I understand that feeling of this anticipation and this desire to get there at all costs, no matter what it takes. And he's finally about to achieve that. And so throughout the movie, he's just obsessed with proving to himself that he is in reality. We talked about how he goes through these scenes, spinning the top, putting the gun to his head. Like He, he has to continually prove to himself because of what he went through with Mao, that he is really in quote-unquote reality and this all leads up to him spinning the top or we I, we assume he spins the top I don't think we see him spin the top we see the t- stop top spinning after he's seen his kid's face it's the first time we've ever actually seen their face and he just walks away he there's no hesitation there's no second glance at the top he's gone and I love that so much because he has completed this journey all the way now he, he's no longer obsessed and paranoid about whether he's in reality or not um, we talked earlier in the, the the podcast about making your own truth or believing your own truth and it's it's um, I, honestly people may disagree with me but I, for me this is the better version of red pill blue pill choice of do i want to believe reality or do i want to believe the dream frankly it doesn't matter anymore because what matters here is that he has made the choice to be with his kids that's what he needs that's what his life requires that's what it's going to require for him to be happy and to have a full life so whether that's reality whether that's dream is really here nor there and so because of that you know i feel like he's developed so much that it just it doesn't even matter to me whether the top falls or not the final scene's not about that. Um, it's now about what he's going to make reality, how he's going to shape it, and not about whether it's a dream or not. Uh, I cry every single time. I've, I've rarely engaged in those debates because I just, like I said, I don't think it matters. Um, and this one gets me in the feels in a enormous way and, and, and is what makes this go into the pantheon for me of, of best ever films that I've ever seen. So. That's good, man. I really, really love that. Um, and it's a different take on, on the ending. Cause I know that I guess one of the distracting pieces is, does it, you know, is it a dream or is it a reality? And it's a question that's very legitimate. And it's one that I think no one wanted people to answer or ask, not answer. Uh, there was an article I read 
several years later, I think it was 2016, 2015, maybe a couple of years last year where he, the, it's a clickbait article. Essentially it says no one answers the question about the ending, but he doesn't. No, he doesn't. It doesn't answer the question. What he basically says is, you know, in line with what you said, that it's not about did the top spin or not. It's about choosing what reality we want. Do we want the reality that we desire? Do we want the reality that is handed to us? And uh, it's just a beautifully, the the way he, he words it is very, it's just a beautifully worded way that, you know, we choose our own reality and we define our own reality based on the world that we live in. We don't let it define us. And I thought that was very, it's a very powerful statement. And I think that's what Cobb eventually um, decides when he just lets the top spin and just goes to his kids. Yeah. And I think that's a great way for this film to end. And and I guess by default, we can mostly end our discussion there. Uh, I I don't know if you got any final thoughts. I, I just wanted to say that I would reiterate what you said earlier. One of the, best things a film can ever do for me is require me or not require me, but make it valuable for me to rewatch it, to understand it. Um, I think that is a, a, a major, major uh, plus in my book. And, and this is a film that does that. You, you've got to watch this more than once, like you said, to even begin to grasp it. And so the fact that I can own this, I can watch it multiple times. I can dig into this. I can have this conversation with you. And we may we may have this conversation a year from now, and we may pull different stuff out of this movie. We may feel differently about what we saw in this movie. That is masterful and why we love Christopher Nolan. Absolutely. One last time for Posterity's Steak. <laughs> and we have now kicked up to the ending. So, Patrick, <laughs> to wrap things up, buddy, uh, tell us where people can find you on the web. Yeah, check me out at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Twitter and Facebook. You can also find my mumblings, photos, and other stuff about me at my website, thisispatch.com. Uh, before I hand it back to you, I wanted to remind our listeners about the hashtag feel this film uh, thing that we're running. We're putting out a poll on February 10th. We're going to list some movies, and you, the listeners, will get to vote and decide – which movie we will cover in that listing of votes. And we, uh, so if you want to, if you want to add movies to, uh, to the potential picks, you can hashtag through Twitter, through Facebook, hashtag feel this film along with the movie of your choice. And we will put it in the, uh, in the, in the poll. The winner will be the one that we, uh, that we discuss. Yep. We got a a couple of those coming up. I think one in, the one in February and then we have another one in March. So get them in, get those uh, suggestions in. I love seeing them and it'll be fun to, it'll be, it'll be fun and scary to not have control for once over an episode. I mean, I'm very excited about it, but I'm also a little nervous because you know, there's, there's a level of creative control when we are Superman three, Superman. I swear if that it is not going in the hat. Um, (laughs) Speaking of, Oh no. Speaking of uh participating in in choosing things, we have decided to do a feel and film awards every year. Uh, we have not discovered what the name of this award is going to be. So by the way, if you have any suggestions for that, tweet them at us, uh, send them to us on Facebook or or to the email address uh, feelandfilm at gmail.com. We don't know what to call them. I'm, I've kind of 
casually been calling them the feelers, but I think that's awful. So hopefully one of you out there can come up with a better name for our feel and film awards. Uh, But what we're doing is we've got a survey set up right now that's collecting your nominations. And so if you go to our blog, you can find that on our website at feelandfilm.com. You can also find it linked in our Facebook group or our normal Facebook page. I've been retweeting it out from our Twitter account as well, but you, you can find it. But go there and just fill out that survey. And it asks generally for your top three in about 16 different categories. I think it's five for the best picture. And we just want to know what your favorites were this year. And what we're going to do is we're going to use that data. Um, we're going to collect it all the way up until, when did I write this down? February the 5th. We're going to collect that through February the 5th. And then we're going to build a ballot based on your nominations. And we're going to have you vote. And then what we're going to do is during the Oscars, as each Oscar is announced, we will tweet and post our Feel and Film Award for that particular category. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, should be interesting to, to find out. You know, I mean, things like Deadpool that didn't get any Oscar love very well may be showing up in this uh, group of nominations. So come participate. You know, get your voice heard. Nominate the films that you liked, the performances that you liked, and then obviously come back and, and vote on them after that. Maybe we call it the Feeler's Choice Awards or something Ooh, like that. <laughs> you know what? The Feeler's Choice is actually not bad. I, I will challenge anyone out there to beat the Feeler's Choice Awards. How about that? Sounds good. Well, if you want to talk to me uh, personally, you can find me anywhere online at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. The show, Feel and Film on Twitter, Feel and Film on Facebook, like we've mentioned. Uh, next week, we wrap up Nolan Month, sadly, with interstellar not sadly that we're doing interstellar sadly that we're having to wrap up nolan month this has been a lot of fun and it's going to be a bittersweet end but we have a surprise for our interstellar episode that makes it a great way to go out patrick absolutely i'm excited about that me as well well i hope everybody enjoyed this episode and until next time stay positive and keep feeling film